Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 120. It's New Year, the first week of January 1902, and we continue to ride or rather walk with the Nace Rates as he and seven other colleagues have been separated from General Jan Smuts, who is on his mission raiding the Cape and possibly to cause an uprising of Cape Afrikaners. But by now, Smuts has realized that the idea of Cape Afrikaners rising up is a bit of a pipe dream. He still wants to surprise the British close to Cape Town to prove to them that the Boers are able to strike. Remember last week we heard how Rates and his fellow commander members had managed to give the English troops the slip over the Swatbergen somewhere in the small Karoo to the north of Craddock. The eight had managed to cross the mountains, but now had to make a difficult decision where the Swartbergen Mountains had consisted of a single clear-cut barrier. Yeah, it forked into numerous sierras that looked like giving us much trouble, says Rates. It was getting dark and a heavy rain began to fall. The eight continued descending from the Swartbergen and needed to find shelter quickly. When the rain falls in high ground, the temperature slides from a balmy 30 degrees centigrade to a really chilly 12 or even 10 in less than half an hour. They found an overhanging rock and rested until daybreak, trying to sleep as the wind whipped rain into their faces. It was too cold to sleep and too damp to light a fire, so we sat shivering until dawn, when we started to grope our way down the mountainside enveloped in a dense mist. They scrambled down the whole day, until, by around four in the afternoon, they emerged from the mist and clouds and could see a long, narrow canyon ahead. Its sides were enclosed in perpendicular cliffs. On the floor of the chasm, a thousand feet below, we made out a cluster of huts, and thinking to find natives there to guide us, we went down to investigate. They were taking a chance, all eight together, descending to the huts. The three with the horses left them in a nearby ravine to look after themselves. We climbed through a fissure in the crags and reached the bottom soon after sunset. They were faced with a number of huts designed in the Isikosa way, but also featuring wattle and daub, the much-fancied building technique of the early settlers in the Eastern Cape. As we approached the huts, a shaggy giant in goatskins appeared and spoke to us in a strange outlandish Dutch. The stranger was one of the oddest people Rates had ever met. He was a white man named Cordier, who lived here with his wife and a brood of half-wild children in complete isolation from the outside world. His African lifestyle, along with his mixed children, for his wife was black, said he knew all about the eight men. One of his sons had been up in the mountains all morning, and hearing the sound of men and horses in the mist, had stalked us and carefully noted our number and the language we spoke, after which he had vanished over the edge of the cliffs to warn his father. The Boers were surprised. After all, they valued their felt skills and the ability to track the British without being seen. Now they themselves had been under scrutiny. We were received with uncouth but sincere hospitality, Raid says. The family lived well, although they were clearly of the bush and felt. Anthropologists have long been fascinated by people like this. The Boers tucked into a banquet of goat's meat, milk and wild honey. Cordier told us that no British troops had ever penetrated this fastness and that we were the first Boers to do so. He had heard vaguely of the war, but his knowledge of the events of the last two years was scanty. 
The sounds of warfare and the bitterness between the English and the Boers had appeared to have ended in the mountains beyond the family's homestead. They were protected from the day-to-day exchanges, the cut and thrust of propaganda. All they had to go in was a person's word and their immediate actions. We spent that night and the next day with this curious Swiss family, Robinson, and in the evening toiled up the cliffs again, accompanied by our host and some of his colts, who stayed with us around our campfires and led us the following morning across our rugged mountains, until by dark we looked down at last upon the northern plains. There the youngsters and their shaggy giant father said goodbye and returned to their isolated home in the thousand-foot canyon like memory wraiths. The idea was to travel in a northwesterly direction, keeping the range of Swartberg Mountains on their left, or the south, then to head directly west, aiming towards the districts of the Cape, lying along the Atlantic seaboard 200 miles away. That's where they hoped to find Jan Smuts. But would this end prematurely? After all, there were so many English troops between them now. They were now in the Goch Karoo, as the Khoi and San called this area, Dry, waterless expanse, sparsely populated by wandering herdsmen. By next day we crossed the Rahoi line that runs from Cape Town to the north. There were no blockhouses, as in the Transvaal and Free State, so we had no difficulty. But there were watchtowers built along the route, and particularly at the all-important railway bridges. They passed one at the Dwyka River. They were now in an area where the rivers were dry seasonal, and the countryside was even more sparsely inhabited. Two days later, they came across one of the large Karoo farms so famous in this area to this day. We reached a prosperous-looking farmhouse, the first we had seen since crossing the Swartbergen. At this place, we had a miniature battle. Reitz had seen some of the biggest battles of the Anglo-Boer War, so knew the difference between a big battle and a miniature while they stood outside the large farmhouse, around 15 British troopers rode onto a rise above and fired down at the Boers. The eight ran to a nearby dry riverbed and tried to make their way up towards the ridgeline, but the English soldiers were highly skilled. By the time we got within a hundred yards of the troopers, they were pinning us down with such accurate shooting that we had to hug the earth and were only too glad to crawl back out of harm's way after dark. The English had left and hadn't spotted the three horses the eight men had left behind near the farmhouse. They knew the troops would be back with a much larger force and so hurried away. Two more days passed as they tried to guess where Smuts was heading, eventually arriving at the district of Calvinia in the Cape. The number of farmhouses increased, but no one had word of Jan Smuts. They were becoming more disconsolate until one morning while sitting at their fire, a small cart came over the rise, drawn by two donkeys. On the seat was a grey-bearded old Dutch farmer of the poorer class, and beside him a smart English sergeant. They stopped what Reitz called this queerly assorted couple. We were astonished to learn that they had quitted General Smuts and his commander only an hour or two before. It appeared Smuts's scouting party had captured the sergeant the previous day, and after spending the night with the Boers, the British NCO had been released. But the old man needed a lift. Reitz and his colleagues excitedly shook the old Dutch farmer's hand, but he remained dour. When he explained, he said that for his part he had less cause for congratulation 
because having been deprived of his horse and having no mind to walk 90-odd miles to the nearest military post, he had ordered his fellow traveller in the king's name to provide him with transport. It so happened that Smuts then said he should drive the sergeant to the nearest post himself, a journey that would take two weeks on the slow-moving donkey cart. The sergeant indicated he too was none too pleased. He was not looking forward to the journey particularly as relations were strained with the driver. The driver, our Dutch farmer, told the Boers that he was glum and angry at having to drive what he called a verdomde Roenek on a journey that would take a fortnight. Roenek is the insult still used today. Translated, it means redneck and refers here to the sunburn the English tend to suffer not spending as much time in the African sun as the Boers. Or at least that's the inference. In other words, weak. This insult is still very much in use today, as some conservative Afrikaners find a great deal of pleasure in referring to English-speaking South Africans as Roineke, and some English speakers refer to Afrikaans-speaking South Africans as Dutchmen. These two don't sound particularly insulting, but used aggressively in the right situation can lead to confrontation even in the 21st century. The Dutchman and the Roineke had another big problem. The farmer spoke no English, and the sergeant spoke no Dutch. They motioned and grunted at each other like Neanderthals. We did not waste much time on the incongruous pair, and, after wishing them a pleasant journey, hurried on. The two enemies sat on the cart together, a symbolic couple, you could say, who are now going to spend the best part of January 1902 in each other's company. Happy New Year. Perhaps it would have been interesting to find out if either learned a few words of the other's language. Rates and his seven friends tramped on foot for a few miles before they breasted a rise. And there, on the banks of a river below, was the welcome sight of many horses at graze and smoke rising from among the trees to show that our long quest was at an end. A mounted sentry rode out to see who they were before shaking hands and galloping back to spread the news of their arrival. Soon the entire commander was running to meet us, and we were surrounded by a laughing, cheering crowd, all anxious to show their pleasure at our safe return. General Smuts was one of the first to greet the missing men. He said he had given us up for lost, and warmly praised the way in which we had come back through without losing a man. But the rake section who rates rejoined was no longer the unit it once was. It was virtually wiped out. Jack Boreas was missing an eye and had a festering hand, the result of a bullet wound that had not healed. Ben Kutsia lay nearby with a bullet in his leg. Nicolas Swart had been shot at close range by an Englishman armed with a revolver and he had a shattered arm. Edgar Dunker had a bullet through the thigh and three fingers had been shot off and both Mulder and Baloch had been captured. The other half of Smuts's commando, led by Van Deventer, was also missing. Smuts expected them to appear at any time. Remember, Smuts had split his force more than a month before after the fighting close to Port Elizabeth. Still, the young general fully expected Van Deventer to turn up at some point. From now onward, the circumstances of our expedition into the Cape are radically altered for the better, reports rates. We'll hear more about his future endeavours in future podcasts, which includes a trip close to modern-day Vintuk in Namibia.
Across South Africa to the northeast as the new year began, there were a few positive signs for the Boers, but by the end of January 1902, General Louis Boerter would be forced to reconsider his base and move southwards towards Freyheit in northern Natal. Lord Kitchener, meanwhile, was spending much of his time in Johannesburg, moving from his headquarters in Pretoria, as the fighting in the north died down and sputtered in the Free State. Kitchener was now planning a large-scale offensive, or drive as he called them, through the Free State to mop up the remaining Boers, which was set to start in February. By then, there would be 260,000 British troops in South Africa, hunting down a few thousand Boers. Seemingly an overkill if there ever was one, but he was facing a guerrilla army that was proving extremely difficult to pin down. He had also accelerated the arming of black South Africans, which had unnerved Jan Smuts, who presumed these soldiers would take revenge on the Boers for their mistreatment over the years. It wasn't quite so simple, yet the black kingdoms and clans surrounding the South African territories were highly aware of the pitiful state of Boer defences, as well as the concentration camps where the women and children and black workers had been moved, leaving vast swathes of the Transvaal and the Free State denuded. Before the war, historian Thomas Packenham notes, behind every white artisan there had always been a black man, and during the war, behind every white man with a rifle, there was a black man with a spade. They had dug the trenches, driven the ox wagons and mule wagons, guarded the cattle. They were diggers and drivers and drovers. They were seen as ubiquitous and docile as the cattle themselves, and to most whites, invisible. That changes when an African has a rifle in his hand, because he suddenly becomes very visible indeed. It was Kitchener, who was well used to arming and training indigenous troops, who initially protested his innocence about arming blacks in South Africa, but eventually Parliament in England demanded to know the real number, and he admitted to providing arms to 10,000 black soldiers by 1902. There were about 4,600 in Natal, the Free State and the Transvaal by now, 2,500 in the Cape Colony, who Kitchener referred to as watchmen on railways and blockhouses. About 3,000 Cape Coloured men who were scouts and police based in the western blockhouses of the Transvaal, Free State and the Cape. But there were many other armed guards, as Kitchener called them, across many isolated districts in the Cape, Swaziland and Basutoland. Lord Kitchener stressed they were armed only for their own defence. This, of course, was hubris. His own officers contradicted this, and by January 1902, Black soldiers were often accounting for more Boer casualties in some areas of the country than white troops, according to British intelligence reports that Pakenham describes in his book on the war. By the end of December 1901 and the beginning of January 1902, these troop numbers were significant. For example, Rawlinson, who commanded the 2nd and 8th Mounted Infantry, had a column which was a quarter black, 453 black soldiers, while Lieutenant Colonel J.S.S. Barker's column in the Orange River consisted of 1,000 black soldiers, 2,500 white. There is consensus that the proportion varied column by column, but that the total number of Africans serving with Kitchener's columns numbered around 20,000 by the war's end. Often they were the scouts and intelligence gatherers, and in the Transvaal, as we shall see, they struck terror into the Boers. Kitchener's other main strategic shift was to halt the policy of concentration camps. This was an extremely canny move for two reasons. First, 
It meant the Boer guerrillas were now forced to remain close to the ransacked farms in order to secure their women and children. Secondly, it placated to some extent the Liberal parties in England where the outcry over the death in the concentration camps had caused the government a great deal of trouble. Sir Alfred Milner, South Africa's High Commissioner, had also agreed to take over these camps, which should always have been run by a civilian anyway. His gesture to the Liberals on the eve of Parliament resuming in the new year was extremely shrewd. He would look good, and the Boers still in the field had a challenge feeding and securing their loved ones. It would slow them down. This war will stutter on for a few months longer. More lives will be lost as the bitter enders shake their proverbial fists at the British Empire. Next week, we'll enter the Northern Cape with Jan Smuts and Denise Reitz. As you'll hear, he manages to train a wild mule that serves him well. He ends up riding over 1,000 miles in the next few weeks as Smuts's main messenger. We will also hear more from Johanna Brandt, the Boer spy living in Pretoria, who appears convinced that the war could still end with a victory for her people. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time and send me a message through my website, abwarpodcast.com, or through Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> En zonder gedaan langs die mooie rivierste val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare.